Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter that we uh, just heard read to us. And as we begin to explore this text, we pray that your spirit would come and unlock your word to us and unlock uh, the eyes of our understanding, that we would uh, better comprehend what is happening and that, Lord, we would uh, draw from the text those lessons that you wish to us to apply to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 to 27. Joshua and the Gibeonites. Now, the book of Joshua is a historical account of events that happened uh, around about uh, 1400 BC. And uh, it was certainly penned by human authors or a human author. But we must never forget that it was also penned by the Holy Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit came upon the author and inspired them to write, to include the elements of the account that uh, God wanted to include and to exclude those things that God didn't want to be included and to also tailor the, 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 the account to be framed in such a way. Uh, so the account has physical content, uh, but it also has spiritual content because it had a physical author, but it also has a spiritual author. And it's interesting uh, when it comes to the military strategies of uh, of Joshua, there have been many military people uh, down through the years who have studied the battle campaigns of Israel and and uh, drawn from those in their knowledge and understanding about how they should act when it comes to military campaigns. They've drawn the physical content out and benefited from it. But also down through the ages, spiritual people have studied the spiritual lessons contained within the uh, physical content and applied that to their lives. And, and that's us this morning. We're looking to understand the physical content, but we're wanting to draw forth the spiritual content as well. And really, you can unlock the physical content by plainly reading and studying the passage. But I'm persuaded that the only way that you can unlock the spiritual content from the word of God is through prayer. You need to spend time in the presence of God be submitted and yielded to him so that this Holy Spirit can work through you. And it's through prayer uh, that you can enter into a study and the Holy Spirit starts to unlock the passage to you. Which is why we, as we begin to study the passage this morning, start always with prayer. We want God to speak to us this morning. Now Israel had completed two successful military campaigns. The uh, seemingly impregnable fortress that was Jericho now laid in ruins. The proud city that was I had been burnt to the ground and all the people lay slain. Now, as a military strategy, it was perfect. It's a classic case of divide and conquer. You see, Israel, if, if this was Israel here and this was the Jordan, uh, Israel had come into the promised land mid at the midpoint, attacked Jericho, act I, and now the situation, the country was divided. It had a north-south divide with Israel in the middle. And that what you'll find in Joshua chapter 10 is details of the southern campaign where Joshua and the armies of Israel go and take the cities in the south. And then in Joshua chapter 11, you'll read details about the northern campaign where they go north to attack all the cities in the north. So it's a classic case of divide and conquer. And as I've said, many military strategists down through the years have read this and they've drawn from these lessons. But we as uh, spectators, really, we watch from the sidelines. 
We're intrigued by what is happening, but we're somewhat emotionally neutral. But the people in the land, they were the people on the pitch and they were emotionally and physically invested. And they see this invading army come into the land. They see this invading army defeat Jericho and defeat Ai. And suddenly they realise, crikey, we're next. And they've got a choice to make. Do we attack or do we find some other course of action? And we're going to see that there are those that choose to attack. But when it comes to the Gibeonites, they choose to uh, follow a policy of deception. Let's read again verses one and two. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite heard of it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So here we have the many inhabitants of the land of Canaan, all named here, the Hittite, the Amorite and so forth. These were all descendants of Ham, Noah's son. And you may well remember in Genesis 9, Ham had sinned against his father. And uh, something of that corruption that seems to be in Ham has cascaded down to these uh, descendants of Ham, these Canaanite tribes. And they were all united against the people of God. And what we see here is a coalition, a Canaanite coalition of the Hamitic tribes. uh, And they were being drawn from three different locations. They come from the hills, which is the southern region of the land. They were drawn from the lowland, which is the lower centre region of the land. And they were drawn from all the coasts of the Great Sea towards Lebanon. So that's the coastland neighbouring the Mediterranean all the way up to Lebanon. So these are the three areas that these tribes come together with a coalition to come against Israel. And it says that they heard of it. What did they hear of? Well, these, these kings of these cities heard of the defeat of Jericho and Ai. They heard of the crossing of the Jordan. They heard of the defeat of Og and Sion, the Amorite kings on the east of the Jordan. And uh, we know from earlier in the book, they heard of the crossing of the Red Sea and the escape from Egypt. And their response was unanimous. Let's pool our resources. Let's unite in one mighty force to fight against Israel. They decided that a full frontal attack was the best policy to be able to counteract this invading force of Israel. But there's one group of people that think differently. And so we go on to read verses three to six. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks and their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provisions was dry and mouldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Now, the people of Gibeon were Hivites and uh, they heard the same report as their cousins in neighbouring cities. And they wanted to save their lives. They wanted to save their skins just as much as their cousins did. But they determined that uh, deception was a better policy than attack. The people of Gibeon uh, therefore sent a delegation of people uh, with the objective of cutting a covenant with Israel. And such a legally binding treaty would secure them 
from the destruction that was almost inevitable upon everybody else. Interestingly, uh, it would be good for us to note uh, Exodus 34 verse 15, where it says, Do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. God, through his servant Moses, expressly forbid a covenant being made with the inhabitants of the land. And the reason for that is that the, uh, the danger was that these, these inhabitants of the land that were given over to idolatry and false worship could influence the minds and the hearts of Israel and corrupt them and draw them into idol worship. So you shouldn't align yourself. You shouldn't be unequally yoked with the inhabitants of the land. That did not forbid Israel, though, to make a covenant with, inha- with inhabitants outside of the land, with people, people further afield. And certainly some of those covenants would have been beneficial for drawing resources. We know that Solomon um, uh, made treaties with uh, other nations to be able to draw resources in so that they could build the temple and such like. But they were expressly forbidden for making covenants with people inside the land. So this is why the Gibeonites presented themselves as coming from afar away country. They knew about the law of Moses. They knew what Israel were allowed to do and what Israel were not allowed to do. This is interesting. The inhabitants, the Canaanites, knew the word of God. And we are all accountable to what we know. Whatever we've read, whatever we studied in the word of God, we are accountable to. So they made their clothes and their their provisions and in appearance uh, to match their false testimony, to make it look like they've been travelling for, for weeks and that uh, they had indeed come from a far country. They got themselves geared up to be able to present this uh, deception. And uh, you can imagine Joshua, he's in Israeli headquarters at Gilgal. I imagine a big tent and in the middle of the tent there's a map of the land of Canaan and uh, it's uh, got the uh, plains and the lowlands and so forth. And uh, there's little soldiers there and little cities and he's got a little stick and he's moving the soldiers of Israel, planning his next mode of attack, almost like a, a World War One general. That's the kind of image I've got in my mind. And as he's gathered around this map, talking to his generals and so forth, moving his toy soldiers into position, a junior officer comes in and uh, Joshua says, uh, what is it, private? And he says, uh, sorry to interrupt you, sir. A foreign group of emissaries have entered into the camp, sir. And uh, Joshua says, oh, send them in. Oh, what a ragged group of people you are. Where have you come from? And I uh, say, so, oh, we, we, we're from a far country, sir. Um, but we've heard great acclaim about you and your people and all that you have done. And uh, we desire to make a covenant with you because of, we've heard of your great God. And so we see here a physical people coming to deceive uh, Joshua and the children of Israel. But we must remember that with every physical act, there is a spiritual counterpart. There is something, there is a spiritual undercurrent that is happening, which we don't always see at first glance. Uh, We are going through the tail part of Ephesians chapter six on Monday nights. And uh, we read there the other week from Ephesians 6, 13. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And for the child of God, 
every battle is a spiritual battle. For the child of God, every battle is a spiritual battle. And we may well see clearly the physical element and the spiritual element might be less distinct to us. But that's why we should strive in prayer, because it's through prayer that that spiritual element will come into focus. You see, both the Canaanite coalition that came with a full frontal attack and the Gibeonite deception, which came in seductively, are illustrations of the two types of satanic attack. We've mentioned this on Monday nights as well. The devil comes in two modes of attack. He either comes as a dragon or as he comes as a serpent. The dragon is open attack. The serpent is more seductive, a disguised attack. And so we see the coalition in verses one and two are coming is a spiritual attack in the form of a dragon. But here the Gibeonites are coming in the guise of the serpent, wanting to deceive and telling lies. And uh, all the while Joshua and Israel are physically taking ground from a people group. Uh, they are spiritually taking ground from the enemy. And the enemy has successfully, of course, taken control of the entire promised land. And he has filled that country with sin and with corruption. He has defiled that land with strongholds of pagan idolatry. And as Israel comes in and takes those citadels and takes those fortresses and uh, destroys those people who are given over to pagan idolatry, we're seeing a spiritual victory for the children of God. But the enemy is not going to take defeat lying down. He's going to counterattack. And so he has this two-pronged attack, a frontal assault by the Canaanite coalition and a covert, uh, covert infiltration by way of the Gibeonite delegation. And you, as children of God, you will face these two types of uh, assaults in your life. There are times when you'll get a full uh, frontal attack and you'll be able to see that the people in front of you are recognisable enemies and they pose a direct opposition to your faith. But you as children of God will also face covert assaults as well. People and, and, and individuals that present themselves as friends, but whose motives are sinister and unseen and deceptive. And we need to be about the business of prayer so that we are alert to both these forms of attack. Now, the fact that the Gibeonite deception is satanic in, in nature is clearly seen in the methods the delegation employed to achieve their goals. We read there in verse four, they worked craftily. Now, this is the first description used of the devil in scripture. In Genesis three, verse one, we read, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. So here we see the Gibeonites coming in the guise and the character of Satan. We also read there and went and pretended to be ambassadors. They pretended to be ambassadors. They pretended to be something that they were not. They had a false identity. And uh, you may well remember those passages in scripture that talk about the devil coming with a false identity. He comes in disguise. In 1 Peter 5 verse 8, he's described that as being like a roaring lion. He's not a roaring lion. He is like a roaring lion. The roaring lion is Jesus Christ. We mentioned him in one of the we sung about him in one of the songs this morning that Jesus is a roaring lion. But Satan comes like a roaring lion. And we know 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, he masquerades as an angel of light. 
And so we see here that Gibeonites are pretending to be ambassadors. They're coming with a false identity, just as Satan does. And finally, we hear them say, we have come from a far country. And that was a downright lie. Gibeon was just a city 25 miles down the road, south of Gilgal. The devil is a liar, the father of lies. And we see again that the Gibeonites come in the guise of the devil. But despite this uh, satanic kind of characteristic that we see within the Gibeonites, I, there's something about them that, um, though deceitful and wrong, there's something of uh, a fear of God in, in embryonic form within them, I think. And this will prove revolutionary, uh, revolutionary later on, and we'll see that as it develops. You might remember that Rahab, back in chapter 2, uh, gave this report to the two spies. I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Now, whether the inhabitants of the land acknowledged it or not, they knew the Lord had given the land to Israel. They knew judgment was coming. And somewhere in the psyche of the uh, Gibeonites, they knew attack wouldn't work. So deception was the more prudent policy. They recognised the existence of the God, the superior, superiority of the God of Israel, and they formulated a plan so that they might be able to survive. And there's the embryonic seeds of the fear of God there within the Gibeonites, I believe. Now, Israel are not easily beguiled, and we see the beginnings of suspicion within the uh, children of Israel there in verse 7, where it says, But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? They knew the word of God. They knew they couldn't make a covenant with people within their land. And they said, perhaps you dwell among us. Something's fishy going on. They sense that something huey, there's something huey going on. And you can almost imagine the Gibeonites shuffling on their feet, worried that they're going to be sounded out. And it's interesting. What do they do next? They decide to dismiss the Israelites and they focus their deception, their attack, solely upon the person of Joshua. We read there in Joshua verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 8. And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Of course, this was another lie. They were not their servants. They were their enemies. Uh, but it's interesting that they focus their attack upon the leader. Satan will always try to strike at the head. I think we're all familiar with Zechariah 13, verse 7, where it says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. If the Gibeonites can get Joshua on their side, if they can hoodwink Joshua, then the rest of the nation of Israel will follow afterwards. So that's where they focus their attack. And it's for that reason that we must be mindful within church uh, to pray for those in leadership, because the enemy will always try to strike the eldership, those in authority. We need to pray for their protection. So we carry on in verse 8 and it says, And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? Joshua knew something was up. There was a sense within him that something just isn't right. Who are you? Where do you come from? But instead of acting on that sense, instead of coming to the Lord in prayer about the matter, he allowed himself to be swayed by the arguments, as we will see. Now, 
God has given us all uh, a kind of second sense, uh, a spiritual intuition, if you will, uh, a kind of intrinsic discerning of spirits. And we know when something doesn't quite hang together, something isn't quite right. And this spiritual intuition should never be dismissed. Whenever we get a sense that something isn't right, we should heed that feeling inside of us. And it should be a trigger for us to come to the Lord in prayer. We need to investigate the matter further, not just with our eyes, but in prayer as well, to ask for God's counsel upon the matter. You know, the Christian should always be growing in Christ. And one of the steps towards maturity is a rising, uh, a rising attuning to that spiritual sense inside, a heeding of the voice of the Holy Spirit. It says in Galatians 5 verse 16, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Part of that walking in the spirit is learning to grow sensitive to God's voice, God's leading, God's unction, and to allow yourself to be directed to obey that voice. And when you have the starting sense of God starting to say something to you, you take time to weigh it before the Lord. You take time to say, Lord, what are you trying to say? And try to tune in so that the voice of God becomes clearer. If you get a check in your spirit, if your spiritual intuition says, who are you and where do you come from? Come to the Lord in prayer. But what do we see happening here? Well, let's read verse 9 onwards. So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, king of Heshbon and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. So the Gibeonite deception was a twofold lie. They give a false testimony for the ears through the things they say, and then they give a false testimony for the eyes through their provisions, through their clothes, through the way that they appear. Now, the, the, uh, the deception for the ears, the audio deception, starts off with, well, we've come from a very far country. Your servants have come. No, you haven't. You've just come from down the road. And they say, because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame. Next, they sprinkle a little God talk into the mix. Yeah, we've heard about the Lord your God and we've heard of his fame. And uh, if you make yourself sound spiritual to those who are spiritual, it's amazing how easy it is to cause the, the spiritual people to drop their guard and their hearts to become inclined. Always be careful of those people who are using spiritual lingo, lingo to try and get you to drop your guard and to become inclined towards them. There are many false ministers in today's world and in today's church and their message does not come from God. Their intentions are selfish and they sprinkle their words with a little God talk so that you get sucked in. And invariably what they want is money or something else from you. Don't be drawn in by a little God talk. And uh, the Gibeonites also say all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites. Now, this is clever. They testify to hearing about past victories some years ago in Egypt and some months ago, the other side of the Jordan with the 
two Amorite kings, but they do not mention the recent victories over Jericho and Ai. If uh, they mentioned the recent victories over Jericho and Ai, the game would be up and uh, Israel and Joshua would know that, hey, how could you hear about these two victories if you'd come from a far off country? So they're, they're, you know, they're, they're smart cookies here with the way they're spinning their little uh, their tricks for, for Joshua. And then they come to the nub of the matter. They say, now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Now, there is the seed of faith in the testimony of the Gibeonites. Indeed, they have seen the hand of God move. Indeed, they fear the judgment that uh, from that same hand. But instead of approaching Israel in faith, like Rahab, they approach Israel trusting in their own schemes, in their own wiles. They weren't seekers, they were sneakers. And uh, they want to make a covenant to save their own necks. So we read on in verses 12 and 14. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our house on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and mouldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new and see they are torn and these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So having employed uh, deception through the years, through the things they say, now they try to deceive using the uh, eyes of the Israelites. And uh, they say, but now look, it is dry and mouldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new and see they are torn. And the Israelites are being led to believe based upon what they see. We all know the proverb, seeing is believing. Uh, that's a worldly proverb. It's not one that applies to us. What does the word of God says? For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. And the Gibeonites were trying to persuade through sight so they didn't employ faith and come to God. And it's designed to cause Joshua and Israel make a decision based upon their own reason and judgment uh, Whereas the child of God should make their decisions based upon the counsel of God. And we see here uh, there in verse 14, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. They were they made that a big failure of not coming to the Lord uh, in prayer. And the men of Israel took some of their provisions. They did not take counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. You know, Benjamin Franklin is famed for saying, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Well, it's a difficult lesson to learn from Joshua, but by failing to pray, you are preparing to fail. And uh, the leaders of Israel examine the evidence with their eyes. And for many, that is showing due diligence. You know, they've, they've taken a scientific approach, but they did not take a spiritual approach. And really, this is a repeat of the mistake made at Ai. They failed to take counsel of God before uh, their first attack of Ai, and they're failing to take counsel of God here in the company of the Gibeonites. Uh, we should always be those that take counsel from God. We should seek him through reading his word, and we should seek him uh, through prayer, looking for guidance from the Holy Spirit. So Joshua acts hastily and this was a mistake 
And Joshua made peace with the Gibeonites. And Joshua aligned Israel with the Gibeonites by way of a covenant. Now, it's, uh, I was uh, conscious of Hebrews 6, verse 12, which Ian spoke on the other, the other week. And it says there, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We should be operating in faith and patience. But what we see lacking here in Joshua is, is any sign of real faith because he doesn't take counsel of God. And we don't see patience either because he acts hastily by way of making a covenant with these Gibeonites. We should not be so quick to act uh, uh, in haste. We should have the patience to wait before the Lord for his guidance. And there are times and there are matters where we look for God's guidance and it doesn't come forth. We want to God to speak into areas of our lives and an answer is not forthcoming. And so we think, well, with an answer is not forthcoming. I'll just have to make a decision and, and we act. We also need to learn to wait upon the Lord. If the answer isn't forthcoming, wait for the Lord. You know, Ian and I are getting together regularly and we're seeking the Lord in prayer about God's guidance for uh, the fellowship. And one of the things that uh, we're praying for is God to give us clear guidance about what we should do about meeting. And the truth of the matter is we don't have clear guidance at the moment. There's no consensus between us. There's no sense of what God is saying. So we're holding it before the Lord. We're waiting upon the Lord for him to speak. And we've been praying about what we should do about maybe getting a building. But we've not heard from the Lord about that either. So we're holding that before the Lord. We're waiting for the Lord to speak. And once we hear that sense of, of guidance, that, that unction from God, then we can begin to act, but not beforehand. Interestingly, there are many other areas that God is speaking to Ian and I about, about the way forward. We know which books we're going to be teaching on next. And there's other directions that we know the Lord wants to take the fellowship. So our ears are open to the Lord. But we should. But when we can't hear the Lord, we need to learn to wait. And that is a very difficult lesson to learn. Uh, but if you're going to mature in the Lord, if you're going to grow in your faith, that's an important lesson to take on board. Let's carry on with our text, verse 16. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their, they were their neighbours who dwelt near them. And then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Jephirah, Beeroth and Kirith-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not, all, did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, God of Israel. And all the congregation murmured against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. If only they had waited upon the Lord, eh? All they had to do is wait upon the Lord for three days and the situation would have had a completely different uh, uh, perspective. And as I said, you know, there are times when you seek the face of the Lord and he does not answer immediately. And as I said, in such cases, you need to wait. And waiting is not easy, but it's amazing how your perspective can change and shift after just a few days of holding a matter before the Lord. 
Certainly Joshua and Israel's perspective shifted after a few days. Now the Joshua and the leaders were faced with two dile- with a dilemma, really. The Gibeonites have, dishonored, have been dishonourable towards us. Shall we in turn be dishonourable towards them and kill them? And what are we going to do about these people that are, are murmuring against us? What are we going to do? Well, in both cases, they chose to honour the Lord. And that is always the right approach. They decided to honour the covenant with the Gibeonites. And uh, by honouring that covenant, they set a good example of true godliness. And they drew the minds of the people, both the Gibeonites and the Israelites, towards God. You know, they were people of their word. And Jesus exhorts his children to be people of their word as well. We know that Matthew 5 verse 37, it says, But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than this is from the evil one. We need to be people of our word. And what we say, we need to honour, even if it hurts us. Here, Joshua was a man of his word, even though it hurt them. It's interesting, years later, King Saul violated this covenant with the Gibeonites. And we read in 2 Samuel 21 that God judged the nation of Israel severely as a result of breaking this covenant. There were three years of famine that struck Israel. Struck Israel. God took Israel at their word most seriously. And God takes you at your word most seriously too. So you could argue that the Gibeonite deception succeeded. The people survived, but they survived with a life of servitude ahead of them. They were to be woodcutters, that is, uh, to provide wood for fire and heat. And they were to be water carriers for washing and plumbing. So the Gibeonites were the first plumbing and heating engineers in Israel. And... uh, uh, For for many years, I I had this idea in my mind, well, if I start another plumbing company, I would call myself Gibeonite Plumbing because of this. That was until I mentioned this to Ian a couple of months ago and he said, yes, but the Gibeonites were known for deception. Is that a good basis for naming a business, one that's known for lying? So, uh, yeah, I poured water on that idea. Thank you very much. Uh, Let's carry on. Verse 22. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now, therefore, you are cursed and none of you shall be free from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to you to do to us. Joshua calls the Gibeonites to account. He challenges them as to the reason for their conduct and he pronounces a curse on them. But the response from the Gibeonites is, is rather telling, I think. They knew the commandment of the Lord, that the death penalty had been prescribed for all the inhabitants of the land. And having counted the cost, they realised they could not defeat the might of Israel's army or their God. They recognised that life, even as a slave, is better than death. And so they yielded themselves to the will of Joshua. And Joshua, we're told, 
delivered them out of the hand of Israel so that they did not kill them. And this is a very similar rationale to every Christian has made. You see, everyone is born with a death penalty over their head because of sin. And the wise man counts the cost and they realise they cannot escape the wrath of God against sin. So they yield to Jesus as servants. And Jesus, who was prefigured by Joshua, delivers them from death. The journey that the Gibeonites were on was one of salvation. It's a slow, progressive journey, but it's the same journey that we have been on ourselves. The Gibeonites knew the commandment of God. It was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you, they say. Now, this is interesting. The Gibeonites feared the command of God. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you. So their actions were motivated by faith in the word of God. They believed the word of God, the command of God, and their actions were motivated by the fear of the word of God as well. Roman, uh, sorry, Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. These Gibeonites had a fear of the Lord within them, but what they lacked was the knowledge of the Holy One. So what better place to be able to gain a knowledge of the Holy One but in the very tabernacle of God? And we read there in verse 23, uh, you shall be freed from being, uh, you shall, uh, now therefore you shall not, none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They were not only woodcutters and water carriers, but they served in the house of God, in the tabernacle of God. So there they were supplying wood for the sacrifices and water for the bronze laver. And every day they would be exposed to the sacrifices that prefigured Jesus. And every day they would be exposed to the teaching and instruction of the priests. Now, this is a wonderful thing. This really is a wonderful thing. Um, sorry, I've not read verses 26 and 27. I just want to read those. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the places in the place which he would choose even to this day. So we see there they're serving at the altar of the congregation. And uh, the, the wonderful thing is, instead of the children of Israel being led astray by the foreign gods of the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites were led to the true God of the Israelites. And in later years, the Gibeonites came to be known as the Nethinim. And you'll, make, you'll, see, you'll see the Nethinim mentioned in a number of passages throughout the Old Testament. And they served alongside the priests in Solomon's temple. And Gibeon, their city, became a priestly city. And the ark even stayed there on occasion. And at least one of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite. And after the Babylonian captivity, while many Israelites stayed in Babylon, the Gibeonites returned to Jerusalem and helped rebuild the wall. These were a people who became devoted to God. Though cursed here by Joshua, they came into the house of blessing. They served alongside the high priest and they also served 
alongside the king. And that's the same journey that we've been along. We, though cursed, have come into the house of blessing and we serve alongside our high priest and our king, whose name is Jesus. And when I read about these Gibeonites, it, uh, it reminds me of that Psalm of David, Psalm 84, and where in verse 10 he says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. And that was the decision that the Gibeonites made. They decided it was better to be a slave, to work as a doorkeeper in the house of God, than to dwell in the tents of the wickedness. And their lives were transformed. Those people were saved and they came into the blessings of Israel. Praise be the Lord. Shall we close with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story about the Gibeonites. And we see, Lord, they started off in the guise of Satan, developing an attack against Israel. But they turned out being children of God, coming and serving in the very house of God. What a wonderful transformation we see in these people. But Lord, it is no different to the wonderful transformation that you've brought about in our lives. We were once wicked, cut off from you, uh, lovers of this world. But you have brought us into your house. You've transformed us and made us your children. Lord, we thank you for that wonderful uh, salvation that you have brought to us and how we have been delivered. Help us to be those who are willing to serve you in whatever capacity you call of us, Lord, that you might be honoured with our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.